Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm Greg Masters, your host, known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru, and the publisher of the blog ACLWatch.com. This is the third broadcast in the weekly series ACL Watch, a midweek review where we monitor, analyze, and discuss the emergence of market entrants as accountable care organizations, as well as the soon-to-be-expected regulatory guidance and associated industry input. Today, I am delighted to have as my guest Dr. L. Gordon Moore. Dr. Moore is the founder and president of Ideal Medical Practices, an exemplary primary medical care collaborative, and chief evangelist for high-performance health systems, also known as exemplary primary care organizations. In Dr. Moore's bio, he notes that I became a family medicine physician to help improve health and reduce suffering. I found that the reality of our work was not what I had envisioned when I entered medical school, and the gap between the current practice and the ethics of our profession is largely growing. Since the mid-90s, I've been on a journey to close that gap by redesigning the way we deliver care in medical practices. I have helped form a physician organization, been a quality officer in an academic medical center, a faculty member of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and a principal investigator of a national project to improve the quality of care in primary care offices. My prototype ideal medical practice of 2001 inspired hundreds of physicians to radically alter their professional lives, reinvigorating careers, and caring and inspiring ripples of innovation that continue to alter the medical delivery landscape. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you, Greg. Glad to have you today. Gordon, you wrote uh, recently on your blog Uh, under the title, Small and Solo Group Practices Can Work Together to Prove and Improve Quality and Participate in ACOs. How so? Aren't these polar opposites in the healthcare transformation affair? But first up, what is exemplary primary care, and how does it contribute to a high-performing health system? Give us some background and context. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you start there because that context is really important. There's been a wealth of research around what makes some countries do better than others vis-a-vis population health outcomes and per capita expenditures on healthcare, as well as some regions of the U.S. that do better than others. And there's very, very clear evidence that the (coughs) high-performing countries and the high-performing parts of the states have a better foundation of primary care. So primary care stands out in uh, contrast to the rest of the healthcare system because the more you put into primary care, the more that you improve outcomes and can reduce total cost. It's one of those upstream early intervention effects. The more that we can uh, help people work on prevention, the more, pe- more we can help people avoid complications of chronic conditions, the less Uh, the more stuff that we can prevent happening downstream that leads to increased expense and worse outcomes. But it begs the question, what is different about primary care? The World Health Organization in 1978 defined primary care as the first point of access, providing a relationship over time, comprehensiveness of services, and care coordination. Those four attributes are essential to primary care and different, again, from the rest of what we do. So, If 
primary care is the foundation of high-performing health systems, and primary care is different because of those attributes, then high-performing primary care is doing well on those attributes and having those tools in place and processes that would allow a practice to do really well. So I see, a, you know, in, in broad strokes, a four simple rules defining the behavior of high-performing primary care. Be the first point of access. And what I mean by that is make it easy for people to get appointments when and how they need them, not just office visits, but let's communicate via the phone, via email, secure messaging, video, let's open portals. The technology is there. We have to get past the regulatory and policy hurdles that make it sometimes impossible to do that in practice. Uh, plus procedural hurdles within practices that make it difficult to uh, say, sure, I can see you today and I can see you on time. The second component is uh, creating relationships over time. Continuity of care is a huge driver of outcomes that are very important, like preventable hospitalization, as well as the ability to achieve better outcomes on chronic disease management. So we have to provide great continuity of care. Uh, this is uh, the second major uh, second major rule. So be uh, enable that in your practices. Make it possible for somebody to see a patient to see the same individual or micro team consistently over time, because that knowing is, is a powerful boon to how we help people manage. Provide comprehensiveness of services, the th third major rule, simple rule, driving uh, practices. And that has to do with how we work on things like uh, self-management support. And this is where it's critically important to understand that we in healthcare know a lot about disease, but individuals, the people for whom we work, are the ones who know about their lives and their conditions. And the power of putting those two things together is profound. We need to move past this concept and mindset of noncompliance, and we need to learn how to join with our patients, how to get on the same page with them, and understand from their perspective what is it that makes it difficult for people to follow through on their good intentions for their health and, uh, and condition management. What is it that stymies somebody's interest sometimes in moving on preventive management or chronic disease management? The better we can understand that from the individuals that we treat, the better we're able to help them overcome those hurdles, learn problem-solving techniques, improve their confidence, and manage conditions. So when we talk about comprehensiveness and services, probably the biggest agenda item in there is learning how to be an effective partner in self-efficacy because patients spend very little time in our office. They spend the bulk of their time managing their own lives, either well or badly or somewhere in between. So we have to learn new behaviors, new techniques, and ways of respectful pairing, joining with our patients in this. And the fourth critical component is, uh, is care coordination. The difficulty is that a lot of these behaviors in practice again, as I mentioned before, are stymied by the current payment model uh, as well as the current measurement model. Neither of those support well the excellence uh, in the foundation of primary care. Measurement is focused on chronic conditions, not on this foundation. Uh, I'm not describing an either-or scenario, but the relative importance of having that solid foundation outweighs considerably the importance of microbiometrics uh, like hemoglobin A1C, not unimportant. I don't mean that for a second. Um, but if we are superb at delivering diabetes care in a practice, we're still leaving the overwhelming majority of our patients out of this improved delivery system. But when we work on improved access and communication 
improved uh, collaboration and shared decision-making, we can solve excellence in primary care for the entire area under the curve and therefore have a much better population effect. So, so let, let me ask you this. If, if we were to take those attributes and essentially flush them up against prevailing primary care practice, general practice in, uh, as a whole, uh, we're, give, it, give it a grade. Where are we currently relative to, to those attributes as essentially a high performance standards for primary care practices? We're, grade the, the state of the art right now. Well, we have a couple of different studies that can give us a hint as to where that grade would be. Actually, there's, there's a number. There are some overall studies the Commonwealth Fund has been uh, publishing over time, uh, as well as the World Health Organization, showing where we stand in the world. And we stand, you know, maybe around 37th in the world in terms of population health outcomes. Elizabeth McGlynn, uh, in a study published in 2003, five or six, I can't remember, looked at the rate at which primary care practices used evidence-based uh, treatment guidelines in the care, and it's a little bit better than 50% of the time. A third indicator, and maybe the most profound, is the work of John Wasson, who's a professor at Dartmouth. And the interesting approach he took was to use those fundamental attributes, access, relationship, continuity, uh, self-management, support, and, and coordination. Those fundamental attributes is a much better uh, proxy for the effectiveness of practice. And when he measured that using patient experience of care as the means to do so, he found that 35% of about 25,000 people measured across the uh, U.S., 35% of people say they have that on a regular basis in practice. So we have a uh, we have a big gap there and a big opportunity at the same time. So, so do you think the uh, current health reform law, the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, starts to address some of these concerns? Is, is it in service to these principles, or is it just gobbledygook? I think it is in service to the principles. I was lucky enough to attend a listening session meeting of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the CMS, this past Monday here in Seattle, and uh, was able to run into an old colleague of mine, Don Berwick, who's now the administrator, um, and listen to him and Dr. Rick uh, Gefillin, who's the head of the, uh, the innovations group that's just starting up there. And these guys have incredible integrity and are very, very bright, uh, hardworking guys. And their, their description of where they wanted to go with the accountable care organization and how they were going to steer this, this biggest of all insurers uh, was impressive to me. As they were talking about how the legislation supports innovation, supports different care delivery models, how they are looking for solutions to the outcomes and not necessarily just feeding the same old way. Matter of fact, they said the same old way is not going to cut it. The typical approaches, the typical players uh, all have to stretch. And in addition to that, the Center for Innovation is looking to include uh, sometimes far out notions as long as they're lined up with the ultimate goals of improved population health, improve the experience of care, and in so doing, without harming the hair on an individual's head, uh, get a reduced per capita healthcare expenditure or at least reduce the trend of increased cost. So let me ask you this, as, as, um, as 
as perhaps an unusual suspect in that consideration process, direct medical practices, which are different from your prototypical billing and collections oriented uh, medical group, do they are, have standing and eligibility for consideration in that process? I'm not sure about that. That's that's going to be a tough one. I didn't address that specifically in, in you know uh, the questions I raised at the listening session, um, and nor did anybody else. But I know that direct. I, I've been fascinating watching direct uh, practices work in the last few years because by shedding a whole bunch of the administrative silliness. Uh, that obstructs our days and soaks up so much of our resource, practices have been able to much better focus on their patient needs, shedding a lot of the barriers to access, improving portals of communication, using cool technology so that they can provide video visits, email, and the like. So that's fascinating stuff. Um, it works for a segment of the population that can be either broad or narrow depending on how the financing their practice is set up. So it provides a really cool platform that gets uh, gets past some of the financial policy mistakes inherent in our current platform, and that's great. I hope that that's part of what's included in the innovation packages, although it remains to be seen. I think there are going to be some national constraints around um, including Medicare beneficiaries, and that may be either easily solved or, or impossible or somewhere in between. Um, I'm hoping that they, they can be at the table. I love the innovation that's happening in that niche, and I would love to see that innovative entrepreneurial energy feed the national emergency, if you will, around uh, our, our healthcare expenditures. I heard a terrific quotation the other day. Um, an insurer in California was saying that the employers in Silicon Valley are spending as much per employee for healthcare as they would for hiring another engineer in India. And, you know, these guys are saying, why, this is crazy. I should just start outsourcing more and more of the work. Uh, we've got to solve this problem. Well, when they're, when they're thinking in those terms and they represent it as such, <laughs> I would begin to look at my job security. My point being that, you know, it's just a small deal. No matter what happens, I know that there, the, the current opinion in the United States is quite divided along political lines and people who support or, or loathe the, the bill. But even if we put the bill aside, we've got a problem. And if we just if we shove the whole thing down into the trash, it's not going to solve the current problem we have. It may even in many ways exacerbate it, but we're still left with this massive per capita cost and rising and insurmountable premiums with a quality deficit as well as an experience deficit. We've got to do something. So the question is what? And, then, and right now I'm willing to put my money on the good intentions behind this Health Reform Act and work to – try to make it as, uh, smart to open the door to small practice inclusion, direct practices, and anybody else who's got an innovative spirit. So um, I would have loved to have been there. Uh, unfortunately, I don't live in Seattle. But um, I, the fact that that question didn't come up, I, I'm wondering if uh, if um, uh, Garrison Bliss or Norm Wu from Q-Lions were not we're not in the audience because it seems like such an obvious question to pose to, uh, to that audience, number one. Let me ask you, um, what is direct practice? How, how do you distinguish it? And, and could a direct practice 
participate or organize as an ACL based on your understanding? I know we haven't seen the regulatory guidance yet, but just from what's out there thus far, what, what's your take? Yeah, and just just let me come back to the question in just a second and, and repeat something I heard at this meeting. At the when you mentioned the rule set around ACO, the uh, Dr. Berwick talked about the rule set under development and it's going to be released sometime next month in January, and the uh, CMS is very interested in hearing from uh, the country what you think of it and where the rule set may be improved, uh, or so. They're very interested in feedback. I got the impression that that interest is genuine uh, and legitimate, and therefore there are mechanisms for reviewing the, rule, the proposed rule set and then getting feedback to them. So I highly recommend uh, people listening to get on board with that. Um, so uh, back to the question, um, what is direct practice? Uh, the, my, my perception of direct practice, at its root, the idea is we're trying to shed the administrative craziness that soaks up so much of our time and resource around the billing of healthcare. The, the money is, the way money flows is deeply problematic and maybe in some sense the fatal flaw of our current healthcare system. The uh, great study in health affairs a uh, year and a half ago or so estimated that the average physician spends about $68,000 per year in office overhead dealing with the complexity of insurance billing. That, that, that's just a lot. If you're a group practice, by the way, um, the average is about 85,000, you know, speaking to the complexity of larger groups and the increased overhead, uh, of, which is, runs quite counter to this concept of economy of scale. So um, with that increased overhead, we also um, have just a boatload of policy in attempts to manage healthcare costs uh, that is often under the umbrella of managed care. And that policy is part of what drives the complexity and outcome. Direct practice, the whole idea is to shed all that stuff and say, you know what, you're killing me. You're making me insane with this busy work. I want to work for my patients directly. And because the insurers have our, their way or the highway approach with contracting, direct practice typically goes to the consumer and says, if you can, if you're willing to shell out, I can do extraordinary stuff for you. And different practices have defined that extraordinary stuff in different ways. Some for an annual membership fee will provide whiz bang physicals, all sorts of gizmos. Um, some are providing superb access and communication or technology that enables all sorts of cool interactive modes. There are lots of different ways. Some direct practices charge uh, just a cash credit card fee for service. Some do it on a monthly membership. Lots of different flavors there. But basically it's saying, you know, I, I'm tired of this third party in the room messing up what we do. Let's get them out of the picture, work direct for the consumer. So as they shed, if you will, this administrative capability or the infrastructure, does it preclude their ability to enter into an ACO-type relationship with the government? It may. I worry about that. The if uh, ACO is a if there there's two things. It was interesting up until the meeting Monday. My perception was that ACO is really a contracting entity, uh, and you're contracting for a block of a, blo a population that you plan to care for well, and there will be certain outcome metrics that will drive bonuses to the group 
that's doing that work. And I can see direct practices or any other practice coming together under a common quality umbrella or corporate umbrella or both uh, bid to be an ACO. And we can come back to the specifics and talk about how sole and small practices can do that in a bit. But Monday was interesting. I heard um, uh, Dr. Berwick talk about ACO and say very explicitly he doesn't see it as he's hoping that it's not interpreted only as a contracting entity. He very much sees ACO as a group quality effort on behalf of the population served. And I like that. You know, of course, that's that's the main driver for the work that I do. Uh, and so I'm pleased to hear it. I'm curious as to how the rules will define that. And um, there is a little bit of – I have a little bit of cynicism because I've seen, I guess we all have, the degree to which mechanisms of financing define the behavior and success of an organization. So I, I've got to wait to see the rules. We'll have to uh, see how it pans out. But it is quite possible direct practices could be included if this is a quality organization. But if it's around contracting with Medicare and a direct practice is saying, I am not going to participate with Medicare, then my guess at this point, and it's only a guess, would be that that practice is opting out of the possibility of participating in an ACL. I hope that you uh, um, consider recording some of your impressions from from that session and actually posting them on your blog. That would be very helpful. I, I've been scanning um, um, for any kind of transcript uh, uh, from these sessions. I've yet to find them. Uh, I might also add that uh, coming tomorrow, for those of you uh, listening to this live or within 24 hours of the broadcast, CMS Region 4 is hosting a listening session, healthcare delivery system reform, uh, and that's a call-in where you can actually dial in to 800-837-1935 and use the ID code 289-50540, and that runs from 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow, December 16th. So if you haven't, uh, um, you can't make the physical locations, uh, this is an easier way to participate. Um, so we are coming up on, let's see, where are we? We've got about seven minutes left. Um, uh, what uh, what else uh, comes to mind about, um, from any side of this, physician leadership, um, you know, is it with, if it's more than just a contracting organization, uh, can physicians do this by themselves? Do they need an institutional or capital partner? Who might that be? Should they work with their hospital? You know, and, and um, I can't, uh, I think it's uh, Louisville or wherever Norton Healthcare is in Humana uh, did a deal. So here's an example of an ACO, I believe is a pilot, but one where physicians are working with health plan. And to form an ACO. So do you have any reflections on that? Yeah, I think the what I heard Monday is consistent with what I was getting as an impression from reading similar stuff, in that the door is open to innovation. Um, Dr. Berwick explicitly said it, it does not have to be a hospital organization, that they are interested in different models. Uh, he did explicitly mention, you know, a group of physicians and practices working together. He didn't get into other models, but I caught the impression that, that they're open to models. They're not going to exclude in their rulemaking uh, any particular type. It was really about the goals, and I like that. I think that 
over-focus on the means to the end is stifling for innovation. And if they're really interested in innovation, they should focus on the goals and the outcomes, not on how we get there. And that's what I, that's, that's the point that I make with them and ask others to make with them as well. Say, don't dictate the means. Let, let us be inventive. Don't say, for instance, that I have to check off NCQA boxes or I have to check off meaningful use boxes. Those are means to an end. Let us focus on the end. The results are what are important, not NCQA recognition. Uh, Eric, go sort of a wide open funnel here as to innovation. So um, I think, I don't know if um, uh, you've been following the MedPAC uh, commentary on ACOs, but uh, um, Berwick did invite a uh, request for comment. It was released on the 17th of last month. And uh, a number of entities uh, submitted their comments for ACOs, and Med MedPAC delineated um, a couple of areas that relate to uh, um, the Medicare Shared Savings Program and how they think it needs to be modified from basically what's been promoted to date. And uh, the, the Medicare Shared, Shared Savings Program is a form of, uh, you know, no downside but a certain upside for savings if the actual claims experience for a given area is below what was projected actuarially. So they're introducing this Medicare Shared Service Program that basically allows savings to be distributed between and Medicare. And, and MedPAC is saying, you know, that's not enough incentive to actually uh, achieve the savings in the program. And they're basically saying three things. Uh, a two-sided upside and downside risk-sharing model needs to be uh, stipulated. Um, there should be pre-notification to Medicare beneficiaries of assignment to an ACO and that the development of a meaningful set of quality measures for ACO potential. Um, perhaps we'll see something like that reflected in these rules once they're published. Yeah, I, I would absolutely expect to see a lot more language around those things. That Those issues came up in the meeting. The assignment issue came up in the question and answer listening period as well. Uh, a very topic. Um, I saw a couple of other responses to their request for feedback, um, and they were focusing on these issues as well, and so I totally agree with them. How well attended was that session? It was pretty good. We had uh, probably a couple, 300 people in the room. Did you have uh, stakeholders from the uh, the patient community, or was it yeah. all providers? Oh, no, no, no. It was a broad representation. very pleased to see that because I believe this, uh, the extremity of the crisis we're in requires all hands on deck. Uh, so I was very pleased to see hospital representatives, providers, uh, plans, public health, as well as public and advocacy groups there as well. So we're coming up on the last few minutes of our session today. Um, what uh, guidance might you offer to uh, physicians contemplating um, doing something here versus sitting on the sidelines waiting for this uh, this so-called fad that sort of disappeared. Do you think that's uh, that's the correct perspective? I'm, I worry about the uh, hands-off, wait-and-see approach. I understand the uh, reluctance to jump on something that may look like a fad, but I think the degree of crisis is quite high, and something's going to happen. You know, we could uh, roll back legislation, go backwards, and see an expanding tens of millions of Americans without coverage and without access to care. Um, 
and, and that's one kind of disaster. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of ways this could go badly. What I hope is that there are enough out there who want to partner with their patients uh, for the greater good of the patients that they serve and to say, we can work together. Uh, we can learn how to uh, better communicate, um, better manage this kind of stuff, and together raise the voice to say we have to get rid of some of these rule sets that make it so darned hard. Office visits equal revenue is deadly. We've got to get past that. We need other means of revenue so that we can honor our relationship over time, so that we can honor all portals to access. Uh, we need to get past the underfunding of primary care where the underfunding feeds the underfunding feeds downstream overutilization because of our inability to do the preventive care and the early interventions that would otherwise prevent it. We have terrific opportunity. I think there are enough clinicians out there who are ready to jump on board with this. And even if you're solo or small practice, you can collaborate with others using simple tools as we did in the ideal medical practice in the project. Time is now. We just need to get on board. Any essential resources you might mention at this point? Yeah, I mean, the, the Ideal Medical Practices Project, we worked with volunteer solo and small practices from around the country, and we figured out how to collaborate using a common quality platform. We used John Watson's howsyourhealth.org uh, platform, and that was very effective. Uh, it definitely comes at things from a right angle, from the typical approach, but was very effective at getting us on the same page and working with our patients and tracking people outcomes like hospitalization rate. ED utilization as well as uh, chronic disease management. Great. I want to just uh, thank you. We need to stop right there. And I just throw in a plug for Twitter. If you're not involved in Twitter, there's certainly an opportunity to connect some dots for innovation thinking on Twitter as well. So I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Moore, for his time and uh, uh, appreciate you coming on, sharing your thoughts. We are uh, next week. My guest is not yet scheduled to tune in same time, same place for another update on the ACO race. Meanwhile, please note that Michael Melanson joins me on the January 12th broadcast on ACO Watch, a midweek review. So thanks again, and I uh, hope to hear from you soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks, Greg. Bye.